Welcome to the 308th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Clark Miller for a discussion of science, technology, globalization, and the pandemic. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, July 12, 2021, there are 4,031,711 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The United States is reporting 607,156 deaths from COVID-19. India reports 408,764 deaths from the disease and Brazil is now reporting 533,488 deaths from COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is Harold Lazarus, academic and star economist, dies of COVID-19 at 94. This was written by Joan Grella, and appeared March 28, 2021 in Newsday. Harold Lazarus of Glen Cove, New York was an unforgettable academic luminary, a noted business researcher at both Hofstra and New York University, whose friends included other star economists. He may be best remembered for his love of teaching, his joie de vivre and an uncommon willingness to fight for underdogs. He tried to make the textbook come alive, his son Mark recalled. And so whenever we walked through Manhattan, especially the theater district, especially Times Square, like 90% of the time we would bump into someone, usually an admiring former student. His father, who also served on a few dozen company boards, might not recall the student's name, as often is the case when professors are greatly outnumbered by their pupils. Dad would be super friendly, Mark said. People love talking about themselves and they love good listeners. That's one reason he was so loved. Overcoming a childhood stammer may have inspired his father to view humanity so kindly. He definitely had a lot of empathy and compassion just for everyday people, his son said. One of seven business books Lazarus wrote is titled Human Values in Management. Even before Lazarus had an arm amputated due to cancer, his research partly focused on executives with disabilities, his son recalled. His academic brilliance, which led to friendships with famed economists, including management guru Peter Drucker, was recognized early. Growing up on the Lower East Side, he attended the demanding Townsend, Harris, and Stuyvesant public schools before joining the Navy as a medic. Though the war was ending and his ship never left the Brooklyn Navy Yard, Lazarus had learned to box, inspired by the prominent Jewish boxers of that era, and he tackled his shipmates who bullied Jewish sailors. He would intervene at his own risk of life and limb, his son said. Earning a bachelor's degree from New York University, Lazarus began teaching full-time at Hofstra in the early 1950s while completing a master's and PhD 
in economics from Columbia University. At both Hofstra and the New York University Graduate School of Business Administration, where he taught from 1963 to 1973, he was awarded Teacher of the Year. At Columbia, Lazarus stumped one of his professors, who sent him to Bloomingdale's top executives for the answers to his questions. His friends urged him to welcome a new arrival from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, who worked at the store. That was Carol Nunez, who canceled her lunch date to go out with Lazarus. Their son recalled their 36-year marriage, a wonderful one, endured until her death at age 57, he said. At 94, complications from COVID-19 claimed Lazarus's life on February 19th, 2021. Questions were one of the professor's hallmarks. At the 1994 Hamptons International Film Festival, Newsday reported Lazarus asked actor Danny Aiello, who was presenting a 13-minute short film, if allowing people to be poor in our society is worse sin than violence. Former student and Federal Reserve Chair Alan Greenspan, invited to speak at Hofstra, paused on his way to the podium, Mark recalled. He kind of fake-punched my dad, leaned down, and said, Lazarus, no asking those hard questions. It was at NYU that Greenspan, already working as a consultant years earlier, had asked Lazarus to waive a course, Mark recalled. Lazarus, who was very pro-student, instead gave Greenspan books to read a week or so later. Greenspan correctly answered the questions Lazarus posed and earned course credit. W. Edward Stemming, who is famed for helping Japan rebuild after World War II and who taught at NYU from 1946 to 1993, was another leading economist who became a friend. So did Timothy Costello, who taught, NY, taught at NYU's Graduate School of Business Administration from 1946 until 1965 before becoming a New York City deputy mayor. While sharing an office with Drucker, who taught at NYU Stern from 1950 to 1971, Lazarus once asked him to read a paper before he submitted it for publication, Mark recalled. Drucker asked, is this your first draft? Do you know how I'm considered a great writer? Mark remembered, great writers are not born. They're made from hard work. I turn in my eighth draft, Drucker told Lazarus. This was advice Lazarus took to heart, his son said, recalling his younger brother's tears when his father returned an elementary school paper with an abundance of red ink. It was the Drucker treatment, Mark said. In addition to son Mark and daughter-in-law Anna Lazarus of Rockaway Beach, survivors include son Eric of Staten Island and his girlfriend Sylvia Fischel of Glen Cove. Okay, I'd like to turn to my discussion for today and let me introduce my guest, Clark Miller. Clark Miller is professor and director of the Center for Energy and Society in the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the Global Futures Laboratory at Arizona State University. Clark Miller, thank you so much for making time to join me on COVID Calls today. Thanks, Scott. It's uh, great to be here. It's a great show. I've really I won't say enjoyed listening to it yeah. uh, over the year, but uh, it's been in, in, incredibly informative. Thank you for that. It, these are words we've still str I still struggle with using the words fun and enjoy to talk about this this kind of work. I wanted to um, start out the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there today. Sure. I mean, I'm in Tempe, Arizona. Um, and uh, we're we're okay, I think is is how I would say about the COVID case today. We've got a 
uptick going on the last week or so in the case rate, uh, I suspect due to the Delta variant, like everybody else struggling with that. Uh, we were down, oh, a month ago or so, and, and for a little while before that, down in the round of 400 or so cases a day, we're probably back up to eight, eight or 900 cases a day, uh, new, new tests coming in positive here. So, you know, compared to some places, that's still quite a lot. Uh, compared to where we were uh, six months ago, it's, a, a, I think, a huge relief for all of us that we've settled in at this lower number. We've got about 65% of adults vaccinated here in Arizona, so we're kind of a middle-of-the-road uh, state. We, we haven't hit that 70% target yet quite yet, but we're close. Um, and, uh, you know, I would say for the most part in the last month or so, we've kind of fully reopened. Uh, you still see a few people wearing masks in, in, uh, in especially in crowded public places, but uh, for the most part, uh, people are behaving as if uh, we're just going to figure out how to live with this thing. That 65% puts Arizona as a state, as you said, sort of trending uh, you know, towards the better side of things in terms of the overall picture in the United States. But it is a state with mixed government and conservative history, if not present. How's that vaccination debate playing out there? And I'm particularly interested in terms of campus. There have been so many governors uh, and university presidents who've kind of made an issue that vaccination will not be required of students as we go into the fall. Is that drama playing out there in Arizona as well? You know, in a very modest way. Uh, the university put out a statement several weeks ago that uh, we would not require vaccination for students on campus, uh, but that we would strongly encourage it. Uh, and that those who were not vaccinated uh, would be expected to continue to participate in our um, uh, daily health checks and our regular program of uh, random testing, which we instituted as soon as we possibly could uh, uh, a year ago. And um, the governor thought that was too strong uh, statement, and he uh, then put forth an executive order uh, a few days later uh, saying that no, none of the universities would be allowed to require vaccination. Wasn't what we were planning to do, but uh, he put it out there and then uh, followed that up with additional uh, uh, limitations on uh, both collecting information about vaccination status and um, uh, limiting what could be expected of unvaccinated uh, individuals. Uh, so we just have now a series of strongly recommended statements I see. Uh, about what we're going to do. Uh, our governor has... Um, preferred to lead from behind on this particular issue is I mm. kind of how I put it, uh, see, see where the wind is blowing and, uh, and kind of follow along. Uh, he has not been the, uh, he, he has not been uh, deeply problematic 
Uh, he's made a number of decisions to uh, go along with, especially with the uh, city leadership in terms mm -hmm. of mayors of our big cities, in terms of imposing mask mandates and, and things like that. Uh, uh, he's a businessman. He understands uh, you got to make practical decisions uh, and so forth. But at the same time, he's not been out front in uh, in terms of, of uh, 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 having a strong public policy response, as you would expect in a state like Arizona, where we 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 have we have a strong conservative history, but it's little c conservative, right? It's mm -hmm. it's uh, it's small government conservatism, uh, very very strong here, and uh, and therefore, you know really discouraging of, of strong public policy responses right. uh, to this kind of event. Let me ask you, if you don't mind, uh, just about your own experience a little bit. I've been asking guests if they wouldn't mind sharing personal memory, something that they really think defines their time through this pandemic. And, oh, it's an almost impossible question in some ways, but I wanted to ask it, ask it of you anyway. Yeah, I thought about this question when I saw it on your list, and I said, "Why? What? What? What would I um, respond?" You know, I've been, and my family have been exceedingly lucky. Um, over the past year and a half, we've been able to work from home. Our son's been able to uh, have, you know, do school from home, uh, and uh, you know, so a lot of my memories are of this room right here. <laughs> <laughs> and inhabiting it for months on end. Um, so, uh, you know, but we've all stayed healthy and my extended family has, has stayed healthy. So I feel incredibly uh, lucky and, uh, uh, you know, uh, just about my own personal experience uh, of this Um uh, but, you know, so I, so let me instead uh, kind of highlight the, uh, the intellectual and, and kind of kick us off here and just say that, you know, I st it's still quite visceral to me a few weeks in to the uh, emerging pandemic case numbers were still extremely low, you know, in the, in the less than 10 per state. Uh, kind of level, uh, except in maybe Washington and, and New York and San Francisco. Uh, and I mean, Seattle, uh, not DC. And, um, uh, and, and, and even then, though, you know, I had this moment where I, I was kind of thinking about what I was seeing. And I said, and I thought, you know, what, one of the weird thing that things that's happening here is that this this thing is not um, it's not infecting us simply in a biological sense. Uh, it's it's infecting us as techno humans, uh, right? And and that relationship that we have with technology is changing the way that this pandemic is playing out, even at those those early stages, right? I mean, it was hitching rides on airplanes. Uh, and covering this, I mean, at far faster than we've seen any pandemic in history move from place to place 
this thing was moving. It was moving really mm -hmm. fast. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was, um, you know, we saw early, even early on, we saw disproportionate infection rates in those who were highly exposed to various kinds of air pollution, right? Living in environments shaped by our industrial and technological uh, machinery. Uh, and that was changing the way bodies were, were reacting uh, to the virus and, and resulting in higher infection rates, higher uh, mortality rates, uh, higher hospitalization rates uh, among uh, those folks. It was, uh, it was infecting industrial workers, right? People who had to go to work because the system wouldn't run if they weren't at work. And so they didn't have a choice. They couldn't stay home. Uh, they couldn't work online the way so many of us have been lucky to do. So, uh, you know, I realized that we, we had something here that was kind of novel. And I've just kept, you know, I just keep seeing things over the last year that remind me time and time again, you know, this thing is different. Right. It's it's infecting us biotechnologically, not just biology, biologically. Uh, and I think that's a big deal. Uh, and I you know, we've not responded to it well in that regard. We've responded to it as a classic public health problem. Um, and it's a distinct form of public health challenge, I think. Well, there's so much to think about in there both on one side in terms of the technological systems that come together. You talk about the system that includes everything from the airplane to the factories that are putting PM 2.5 out there in the air and people have it in their lungs. That's a system. I think a lot of people think of those as sort of disconnected pieces of something. You're thinking about it as, as something that has pieces that are synced. The other part of that I want to ask you about is, is on the response side of things. And in terms of the fact, I mean, first of all, you and I are having this conversation via uh, a medium. It, it wasn't unknown before COVID for people to have Zoom calls. In my experience, it was generally treated, though, as like, do we really have to do this? It was really a kind of a second rate kind of thing. It was mm -hmm. not the, the main way you would consider interfacing with people to um, have a meeting, to share ideas or to work on a project. And then we slipped into that. It wasn't seamless, and it certainly is for those who had the privilege to do it, but it's there. And when that transition was made, just one example of, I'm sure, many others that you probably have thought of in terms of the way our response was also um, technologically situated, maybe, it, and we haven't examined that quite yet, but it's become part of the pandemic response. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, the ability of schools to continue to operate, uh, I think has been remarkable. Um, and it was unbelievably rapid of them to change that, right? I mean, so, you know, we had it here in the US uh, that the school, uh, school functionally closed in March of, of 2020. Um, and people didn't know how long it was going to be out. 
Uh, and so the kids, um, you know, kind of struggled. And basically, they went into a read stuff online and and um, and and then do online homework, and you know each on their own. And for my son, that was a disaster because um, he's not a self-motivated uh, person with respect to his education, and so. Uh, you know, he really struggled and it took a lot of time um, and work with him to, to get that uh, done. He, it, he never liked homework to begin with. And this was the homework system now taking over everything. But basically over the summer, the, the school system here completely retooled uh, and they transformed everything into Zoom, live Zoom uh, instruction and they made it work. I have incredible respect for the teachers. Um, and I hope they're sleeping through this summer because I know it was exhausting <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for them. And unfortunately the, the state extended the school year last year because they were afraid they were going to have days when they couldn't do school. And so they, they wanted to make sure they got their full 180 days in. Uh, and the net result was the kids were in school for like th three and a half weeks longer and everybody was just totally wiped out by the end. But it, but it, and, and there were, of course, these other, then these other technological things came in, like, you know, not everybody has robust Wi-Fi in their house. Right. And right. so some of the kids were really struggling. And again, the schools adapted and they actually opened up socially distanced, pods in schools for kids who didn't have Wi-Fi at home uh, to come in and do school online in school. It was, uh, you know, the kind of thing you'd never imagine that you would actually do in a reasonable world. But they were trying to figure out how do you make this work so it's not unequal, right? So, so that you at least have some hope of having all the kids in the same place. And of course, it also, you know, one of the things that's also clear is that uh, it's made visible how badly learning environments um, sculpt who's good and who's not in school, mm. right? Because in a classroom, some people learn really well and others, it's not the right environment for them. Right. Online, other people learn really well and it's not the environment, right environment for them. And these individualized homework, right? Some people, some kids, really great for them, others not at all. And as we've gone through these different modalities, you know, it's become just become clear, you know, that some of them are better for each kid. And I think our school system is trying to figure out how can we, how can we acknowledge and recognize and take advantage of that uh, going forward. So I think they're going to make permanent their digital online school. Where, where they have full-time Zoom uh, instruction because they realize for some kids it's a much better learning environment than the, than the classroom is. Um, and uh, so we'll see, you know, how it all evolves from here. Mm -hmm. I think we're all across the board. We're going to be trying to figure out which parts of this digital world that we've created we now bring back into our regular 
activities and which parts we don't. And it's going to depend. I mean, we're already seeing it with the banks too, right? Half the banks right. are saying everybody's coming back full time to campus. And the other half of the banks are saying, yeah, we're pretty convinced, uh, you know, a significant fraction of our workforce is never coming home, never coming back to the bank. So it's really interesting. It is certainly. And a lot of tech, I guess, tech companies have, have said that as well. I just to come back to something you were saying, I know that disability justice advocates have been very worried in this moment, rightfully so, that for so long they were told, well, we can't possibly make this kind of accommodation for you. Right. And then using distance technologies, accommodations were made for whole school districts. So yeah. I'm intrigued to hear that that where you are, they've sort of said, well, we kind of keep this bimodal system going because it actually seems to be catering to um, a certain subset of students. I don't know if that's framed as as disability accommodation. It doesn't have to be, but it certainly, to me, is one positive response to a concern that I've heard articulated very well that people just want to get back to normal. And for most di people with disabilities, learning disabilities or mobility disabilities, normals doesn't work. Right. No, absolutely. Uh, and and I think that's part of what is is positive. Um, but they also realize that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not just disabilities. Uh, and, you know, I mean, and, and I've written about this and I know, and many others have as well, but, you know, disabilities are, are increasingly not the kind of things that we've historically thought of as disabilities, right? So pathological problems with biology so much as their infrastructures that are designed so that they work for what we consider a normal human body. And if you don't have that normal human body, then you have lots of problems. Right. Uh, and it's amazing how deep that runs. And I think, I think we're now learning that learning systems like a classroom function in that same way. For some kids, they're really powerful learning spaces. And for other kids, who we've never identified as learning disabled, they're just not working as learning environments for a whole variety of reasons. Um, and But of course, it also then also applies to folks with mobility disabilities and, and other kinds of learning disabilities um, where you can, you can do different things in these online environments. Just a so, quick reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Clark Miller today about technology and society and the, and the pandemic. Um, Clark, I want to ask you a, a question. This is not only for the science, technology, and society scholars out there, but it is also kind of for them. Um, you're the co-editor with Ulrika Felt, Rayvon Fouché, and Laurel Smith-Dorr of the Handbook of Science and Technology Studies, and you've published in the field for a long time, really many important works by yourself and with co-authors. So I want to ask you, because I think you have a unique vantage point on this, but how have you seen the field of science, technology, and society research 
uh, react. And I know academic production is not like calling the fire department. It takes a little <laughs> time, um, but there's been a little time now. And so yeah. I'm sort of interested what you've seen in terms of trans scholars or areas of work that were already underway that have picked up a lot of momentum through this time or other area, other questions that maybe have kind of received less attention in this time. What are you seeing? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. I think, um, I think the, the most immediate response and in some ways the most impactful response from the community has focused on um, knowledge. Knowledge, of course, is a central element in uh, science, technology, and society scholarship uh, with a real emphasis on uh, asking you know, a couple of important questions. How do we make knowledge? Uh, how do we know things? Uh, and not in a kind of abstract philosophical sense, but in a practical on the ground, okay, I wanna know how this works. How do I go about doing that? What are the, what are the practices? What are the routines? What are the ways of thinking that I have to put in place in order to, to create new knowledge? And, um, and, and then of course, how do we use knowledge, right? Once we, once we have these purported facts or observations or theories, what do we do with those? Uh, and those were, you know, front and center, especially in the early pandemic. And I think it drove a lot of, of the early scholarship, right? Things like counting. There's always in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in, in, a, in a, can we call this an event? It's been a year and a half long event. Um, I don't know. Uh, there's always a jillion things to count. There's a jillion ways to count them and a jillion ways to report those counts. And we've seen every conceivable variant uh, of that, I think. Uh, over the last year and a half. And, and a lot of really interesting thinking uh, from the STS community about, about that. Uh, and a lot, of, a, lot of, uh, a lot of valuable insights in kind of, that I think hopefully we'll, we'll be able to reflect on and systematize and maybe put out there in, in, a, in a compelling way uh, for the, say the public health community, uh, for public administrators, uh, you know, okay, so this is what we've kind of learned about the challenge of trying to uh, put in place useful counting systems for people, for counting things like cases and uh, for counting things like tests, for counting things like deaths. And of course, what are the limitations of any particular strategy uh, of, for trying uh, to count? Same thing goes for testing, right? Testing is another thing that STS has historically written a lot about. Um, and of course there were different tests early on uh, for COVID uh, available in different places to different kinds of communities, lots of innovation happening out there in the in biotech firms and and other kinds of, of hospitals and even in our research uh, facility here. We had a big research facility on campus uh, who early on said to the president, "Look, we can build a giant testing facility and we can test." the ASU community and we can meet, make it available more broadly. And they did it, they built it. And we've been testing, you know, tens of thousands of people 
on a very rapid basis uh, here with a, a test. It's a saliva-based test. So you pit, spit into a test tube and it's just really simple. Um, and so, you know, that kind of bottom-up innovation that was happening all over different industries, uh, building different tests, um, and then trying to figure out how to deploy those tests uh, in a meaningful way. Um, but in reflecting all that, right, both the counting that we do, you mentioned the Johns Hopkins website that very early on put out, started putting out data on, on how many cases there were. Um, and also with the testing regimes, you know, what I, one of the things I will say is we never developed, and I'm not sure whether this happened anywhere else. I mean, I, there were apps developed in other countries. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much they ultimately got used. But here in the U.S., we never developed a knowledge capability that allowed everyday people to get a handle on what was going on. Um, and I find that fascinating. Uh, you know, ultimately, it devolved to masks, yeah. right? Ma the presence of a mask on somebody else's face became an indicator of whether they were taking it seriously or not, and therefore... You know, if you were on one side of the camp and on the other side, it became an indicator of whether you'd been brainwashed, right? But that visible signal in a social environment was the only information we had to go on in making day-to-day -day decisions. And it just seems to me a massive failure of our public knowledge-making enterprises, um, that that's the best that we could do, right? Uh, in terms of helping inform people how to stay safe uh, in their day-to-day -day interactions. Uh, we've had 18 months. We've developed umpteen bazillion different kinds of testing for this thing. We've developed half a dozen major vaccines We've spent bazillions of dollars doing all of that. And in no, none of those cases did we ultimately manage to inform everyday citizens like with useful knowledge that they could put to work in their daily, daily choices. And that to me is a massive failure, public, public knowledge making failure. Um, and I think has contributed to why this thing has so disrupted our society, hmm. right? And been so disruptive, not just at the level of, you know, high level public controversies, but the level of people feeling unsecure in their day-to-day -day lives. It's so much in there. And I'm glad you, you started with the, and I couldn't agree with you more about the STS contribution on knowledge making and the counting aspect and the testing aspect. I read the daily uh, count that comes from Johns Hopkins and other sources. And I spare the listener what's going on in my head, which is I'm reading you this number with huge reservations. And sometimes mm -hmm. I will even read a story after which challenges the count and not to be meta, but just to show what's out there, which is that the count has, is authoritative and moves quickly into visualization and through the media. Um, and we have seen, I think to the, I would, I would say we've seen, certainly in the Western press, pretty significant pushing back on the count. Um, 
or questioning and talking about an undercount. This has been big in India. But that, mm. even just to describe that to you just now, took me 45 seconds. I mean, it's not a fast discussion. And then we go one level deeper right. into it and get into how public health reporting works and the cost that it takes to come up with a number. That's where I wonder, you know, you're saying this is a place where STS has made and could continue to make a contribution to public health. I feel like that's one of those areas where the kinds of research that STS scholars do about how numbers are produced and how they gain traction out there, that can be a contribution, should be a contribution. I agree. I think it should be. I think, you know, I think one of the challenges of our, it's a challenge of our field that um, we take simple things like that and, and, and unpack them. And that takes time. Um, and I think the lessons that we learn uh, from this are going to take time. And, and I hope that we infrastructure that effort uh, to draw lessons uh, from this. I don't know who would fund it, but I've been participating for the last year in a National Academy's study uh, of how do we accelerate the clean energy transition. Um, and I got to tell you, you know, having read many of these reports over the years and always wondered, okay, what is it like to be on one? It's actually quite a remarkable experience. And, mm -hmm. and it's, it's an incredibly valuable exercise to bring together 15 to 20 really knowledgeable people on a topic and over the course of a year, ask them to synthesize what's known uh, about it. And in this particular instance, I think there could be a huge amount of value if we were to take these, these you know, people who know this stuff in detail about counting uh, and about testing and about you know, how we make public health knowledge uh, valuable and useful for different kinds of agencies and institutions and ask them to put together a synthesis uh, of what we've learned over the last uh, year. I think it could be hugely useful uh, for the next time that we have to deal with something like this. I want to return to this question of investigation in a moment, but there's one other thing you said that was um, really compelling, and I wanted to ask you about it. This issue of making um, knowledge available in a format for average folks to use in the pandemic, particularly in the United States. I'm thinking here of like um, apps that have were available, I'm in South Korea, made available here, using social media platforms and particular sort of bespoke apps. This was also done in Singapore and Taiwan um, to do contact tracing um, to let people know even if they'd come into proximity close proximity of someone who had tested positive and that presumes a sort of a complex array of things that are happening in the public health space like for example testing is happening and those numbers are being mm -hmm. kept still I, i've thought a lot about that it, in that the discourse in the united states around that very quickly closed on the idea that americans just won't do that I heard that so many times. Americans just won't give up that kind of information about themselves. And so just forget it. And I hear that and I go look at Facebook. I'm like, Americans will give up a lot of information about themselves. Yes. So I'm not compelled by that answer. That seems right. like there was 
I don't. I wonder what you think about. It. It's a huge topic, but I just wanted to get your your sense of that. Is it just that there was no technological momentum for those kinds of apps, and they would have had to start from nothing? Or do you have any working theories about why that didn't catch on in the U.S.? Because I agree, it would have been pretty impactful. I think that it. Um, I don't have. Uh, I have not thought through the question of why that didn't happen here uh my initial thought on that would be that the um we had 50 public health systems not one uh and of course that's an ordinary feature of uh the american political landscape uh but we are really used to uh, a centralized action on the part of the Centers for Disease Control. Uh, and when that got disrupted uh, in this particular context, I think it left state public health departments reeling, trying to figure out how to do this on their own. I think a comparative analysis of state public health department reporting of counts and tests and stuff like that would be potentially really interesting, especially if it tracked their development over time. I mean, I'm used to looking at the Arizona one. I have no idea what the others looked like, but I know that ours evolved in a very particular context around a very particular set of issues. And they made some real choices about what to present and what not to present. And they did so with essentially no federal guidance about what they should be doing. And I think in that context, I mean, you certainly could have seen um, you could have seen app makers take advantage of that. Um, but I think they're so used to operating on a scale that is everybody, right? If you think about a Facebook, an Apple, they don't have a capacity to do 50 different responses for 50 different states. It's just not in their mindset to be organized in that way, right? I mean, so, I mean, Facebook, yeah, it's, it's got all these groups that are divided up and, and, and any social network does where it's broken up into different organizations, but it's definitely not by state. Right. Uh, and so that, you know, I'm I, I'm absolutely confident that the, the development of apps like that would have taken coordination with some sort of governmental actor uh, to bring them into being. I mean, if only because the governmental actors were the ones doing the contact tracing. I mean, again, the, these these right. entities don't have the capacity uh, to do contact tracing, right? They, I mean, think about a Facebook; it's a tiny organization. Uh, in terms of the number of people. It's just the way that they that, that platform model in Silicon Valley works. It's not about building up the human capacities to do things. And so it re relies entirely on, you know, the voluntary contribution of, of labor um, and or government data, right? Being able to access uh, something that somebody else is doing. You said earlier, you know, this 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 knowledge is really expensive. It's hugely expensive to do this kind of stuff. You have to, 
you know, you have to have lots of people uh, doing the work of producing these kinds of knowledges. If you think about the testing schemes that got set up and the amount of labor that went into doing tests, collecting test results, sharing that those results with the state website, compiling and aggregating all of that information on the state website. It's a huge undertaking. And so I, that would be my hypothesis. Hmm. There's just a mismatch between the different kinds of technological and, and governmental organizations uh, for moving knowledge around. I'd like to circle back on this knowledge production issue for a second and actually bring that into the sort of domain of, of the public square. Do you expect investigations uh, of COVID? And if so, what type? I mean, you talked about the National Academies as one mode of investigating a pressing social problem. I think a lot of times they try to stay ahead of those problems or at least on the wave of those, of those problems, like energy transition, the one you talked about. Mm -hmm. It seems like we do need organized ways to learn so many things about COVID in a time-sensitive way. I try to track that. I see murmurings, but I haven't seen much that's concrete yet. I wonder what you think about it. No, I haven't either. Um, it... I think the there's too many things going on simultaneously right now. I mean, big things. Um, and so, you know, I, I think, I think we'll see that happen. I think we'll see, um, I think we'll see studies being done. I think we'll see reports being written, but they will be of the more ordinary kind. Uh, that you know, the the CDC will do a review um, and and lessons learned uh, kind of thing uh, and so forth. I think I think we'll see that, but I think it will be of the ordinary bureaucratic kind, and not the at least here, not the kind of big. Uh, you know what happened, and 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 how do we make sense of it? Kind of thing. I wouldn't be surprised if we did at some point see a national academies study uh, of some sort, but I doubt of the kind that I described. <laughs> you don't think? Um, I I would love to see the STS community figure out how to do it on their own. Um, because I do think it's the kind of thing that. I think our community is now mature enough that we have we have networks of people who know enormous amounts. We have um, a capacity to do research uh, that's certainly unprecedented in our community's uh, time, and and that research reveals things that no other fields uh, are revealing and. Uh, and so I think that it's worth our time to start thinking about how we could do some of that work ourselves um, and, 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 how, and where we could get money to do it because it's not going to be free. Um, but I think we could potentially start to persuade different kinds of funding entities that 
that that kind of synthesis would be valuable. That's a really interesting idea and not strange in the realm of engineering, for example. After major structural disasters, various different engineering societies, the United States and abroad, publish their own investigative reports. That's pretty normal. Um, Absolutely. A lot of times they just duplicate what happens in congressional um, studies, and they don't seem to have any problem doing that. It serves their own professional interests. Um, yep. And it's not just CYA. A lot of times I've read a lot of those reports, and some of them do, um, they break stories. They make new knowledge out of those. And they, one thing that's often overlooked is they bring together configurations of researchers which tee up possibilities for future future work. You can tell I'm enthusiastic about this idea. I, yeah, yeah. I, wonder, I wonder what it would look like for the STS community to do that, because it would be moving into a space that's outside the halls of the academy. You'd be wading into the court of public opinion on that kind of thing. You think it could actually be done? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think, um, uh, I think 4S, I think its European counterpart um, could easily uh, decide that this was a topic worth pursuing um, and institutional. I mean, I, look, we've got, um, uh, you know, there's still significant support at NSF for our field. Uh, and you could take a half million dollar proposal to the STS program at NSF. Um, we've got an ad, a member of our community who's now the deputy director of the Office of Science and Technology Policy in the White House. You could take a proposal to her and say, this should be done, it would be valuable, and can we figure out how, where the money would come from in the federal government to see something like that done? As you say, other fields do it all the time. I was part of a project that got a little in, you know, 30 years ago and that got a little bit of seed money from NSF and then got multiple millions more from the department, from NOAA and the Department of Commerce and at least one other federal agency um, to expand the research just because there were people who were interested in, in other agencies. So, so I, I would be quite, uh, and the Europeans are, are, better th at this than we are. Uh, there have been, you know, reports from the STS community on the Knowledge Society, for example, uh, coming out of, funded by the European Union. Uh, the European Professoriate is closer to the public administration than uh, American academia has been in recent decades. Uh, so I think you could see something happen there too. It'd be great if it was joint uh, you know, some sort of international effort. Mm -hmm. You heard it here mm -hmm. first, folks, uh, an STS <laughs> COVID investigation. Uh, so Just a quick reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Clark Miller, 
today about technology and infrastructure in the pandemic. And I promised infrastructure, so let's get to that. And maybe just start with a kind of a general question for you about infrastructure. First of all, lessons um, that we can learn about COVID by understanding infrastructure design. You talked about that at the top a little bit in terms of the sort of techno-human and the degrees to which technology sort of frames everything about this pandemic. But just to go a little further with that, um, what's worked and what hasn't in terms of the infrastructure systems that we, that we have throughout this time? And, and that also sort of points to a set of questions around transitions that are possible and how COVID might be a bit of a catalyst for some of those, some of those transitions. So it's the big infrastructure question, I guess. I'd like you to sort of pick it up wherever you want to, Clark. You think deeply, deeply about these issues. Yeah, um, you know, I think uh, what I started to say earlier uh, goes in really important ways. Infrastructure, in some sense, uh, is a powerful organizer of the contemporary world. Uh, and, and that goes right down to our biology. Uh, human biology today is not what it was 100 years ago, let alone 500 years ago. Right? We're different creatures biologically than we were. Uh, and all of that is a result of our infrastructures, our food infrastructures, our water infrastructures, our engineered infrastructures, the kinds of chemical environments that those infrastructures create for us uh, today. Um, you know, the biological exchanges that we have and the things that come with them, right? We breathe stuff in and out, we drink water, we eat food, and along with that comes all kinds of other stuff. Um, and that has shaped our, it, the composition of our food is radically different today than it was, you know, a few hundred years ago. And that means our bodies are different because we're building them out of different building blocks. And um, we saw that in COVID in lots and lots of ways. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I still, uh, you know, I mean, we talked about the inequality in terms of people whose lungs had been impacted by PM 2.5. Um, we saw it in lots of other ways, right? People, workers who worked in these industrial processes, there was a, there was a period of time where meat was unbelievably scarce in the United States because we were having massive outbreaks of COVID-19 among meat packers. Right? The people working in these critical facilities where all the meat comes together, gets processed, and then gets shipped out into the supply chains. At these nodes, there are people, and those people were working in particular configurations in relationship to the machinery. And as a result of those configurations, they were passing COVID back and forth with each other and getting sick. And then that meant that the plants were either being closed because of sickness or they weren't working at full efficiency or whatever, right? And it was just illustrating this, this relationship that we have um, with these machineries. And so when you think about, but then, you know, think about the other end of it, right? What, what worked? Well, what works in health delivery is in a sense what has always worked. Uh, that is to say, I shouldn't say always, but at least in the last century, what has worked? Short-term technological interventions that deliver immediate health outcomes, right? 
you can take a pill for it. You can get a shot for it. You can right. put a cast on it. You can have surgery for it. If, if you can do that kind of short-term technical intervention, then you can fix it, right? But what doesn't work? Long-term COVID, right? These enduring problems that people are having with this uh, disease. We don't have a clue how to, how to deal with those in the system. Uh, you know, we, we jumped on this idea of a vaccine because we know how to do that. Um, and we left aside all kinds of other things that were much harder, much more complicated uh, problems to kind of grapple with along the way. And that put us 12 months behind this thing right, in a really kind of uh, serious uh, way. And we have these kind of problems all throughout our uh, health system. Uh, you know, it's almost impossible in today's food systems, at least as they manifest in the United States, right, the kinds of food that are available to people at the prices that they're available, it's almost impossible for you to live with diabetes in today's food system. Right, because it's not something you can give somebody a short-term intervention for. Right, there is no pill, there is no vaccine, there is, you know, it's right. you have to manage your diet. And well, managing your diet when the whole food system is designed to give you sugar and flour just is a non-starter. Right. right, right, right. And I think you you talk about these transitions. This is really both the opportunity and the challenge. We've built systems that are unsustainable. The energy system and its consumption of fossil fuels, which produce carbon dioxide, which are now driving the Earth's climate system off a cliff, right? That is just simply unsustainable in, at its root, right? You, you've got to do diff, you've got to differently configure global energy systems if we have a hope of being sustainable. The food system and the, you know, the, 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 the growth in carbohydrate-based diets is unsustainable from a health standpoint. We've got to fundamentally reconfigure how we think about uh, and organize the production and consumption and transport and distribution of food. Uh, in, in the United States. So we've got to figure out how to do these massive transitions in these infrastructures, which embed all kinds of, you know, political economies, to put it mm -hmm. <laughs> most starkly, right? Organization of power and wealth is built up in relationship to these systems, which means at the same time that they're unsustainable from a health standpoint, or from an environmental standpoint, they're also deeply unjust uh, and deeply unequal in the kinds of outcomes uh, that they create uh, in the world. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I've come to, I think, in some sense, be very unhappy with the trajectory of a lot mm. of scholarship that seems to want to base uh, seems to want to argue that capitalism is the root of all inequality and the root of all evil. Uh, you know, when I look at what's happening and I say, you know, these infrastructure systems that we've got are pervasively distributing inequality and they're not separate from capitalism, but it's not in a sense, capitalism by itself. That's the 
problem. I mean, it's not as if other countries that followed other ideologies didn't produce just as big and massive uh, systems that were just as unsustainable. So there's something about our relationship with technology that we've also got to figure out how to fix. And the problem is we've built these massive infrastructures with embedded, you know, embedded costs, right? We've sunk costs. We've invested trillions of dollars in building these infrastructures. Um, They're unbelievably efficient in many respects, which means that if you try to do something different, you create inefficiencies, which then translate into higher costs for folks. Um, They're, you know, and they're absolutely critical for survival. I mean, most of us don't, wouldn't know how to get food except from the grocery store, period. Right. And so you can't mess with them while you're fixing them. Right. We got to figure out how to do this transition in place with everybody secure along the way. Uh, But the opportunity to design different kinds of infrastructures that generate better outcomes, better distributions of outcomes is is huge. You know, our work with solar energy is really interesting here. We've got this um, (coughs) kind of project where we ask, well, you know, so, so, what, what, what are the opportunities, the design opportunities, if you will? Mm-hmm. If we powered half the world's energy system with solar energy. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a really interesting problem because solar energy comes packaged in a panel. You know, it's mm-hmm. a couple of meters by a meter uh, panel. And it, th- that unit is actually unbelievably flexible, right? To go back to STS, Trevor mm-hmm. Pinch's idea of interpretive flexibility, bike, uh, Viva Biker, and those guys, this idea of, 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 well, you could arrange that panel in lots of different ways. Turns out to be absolutely true. We are, we are arranging solar energy already on the planet in everything from calculators and lanterns all the way up to giant utility scale power plants. The ownership of those is structured in radically different ways. There's lots of ways you can do solar. And so, you know, you, you think about what the opportunity is to, for example, distribute ownership more equally, right? The fossil fuel industry is one of the most concentrated industries in terms of ownership on the planet. It drives inequality in income and wealth as a result of who owns and how they, uh, they uh, extract and exploit those resources uh, and where the monies flow. I mean, I, you know, the ordinary American $2,000 a year goes to buy carbon-based fuels. Yeah. That's a huge flow of capital, uh, right? So if you could organize the distribution of ownership of these solar panels in a different way so that it wasn't highly concentrated, uh, you could do some pretty amazing things in terms of, uh, of kind of rethinking how we interact with and uh, uh, our energy systems and what those political economies look like. But it's really hard to kind of break out of that kind of conventional way of thinking about these systems that comes along with the way they're currently organized. Just to follow up, you pointed to a real signal problem here, which is, you know, the individual, and you ask them, well, okay, let's change the system. And like you said, they're like, well, uh, okay, I'm, I'm one person and it's, <laughs> really complicated array of things and that's just yeah. the tech side not to mention the financial side and, and every other every that's other piece right. of it 
And so you do have this problem of the individual and the structural to, to deal with. But then here comes the pandemic. And, and a lot of that, I should just say, to bracket this, a lot of pessimism, I think, has accumulated around climate and climate action in that regard. People across the political spectrum, really, and around the world have said, yeah, action is necessary. But what can one person or even a small group of people actually do about it? And then here comes the pandemic yeah. and the whole world locks down. Those who can, but pretty impressive collective action, I have to say, from March into May of 2020, not something I expected to ever see in my lifetime. Now, I don't want to make too much of it necessarily, but it did show how it, uh, existential global problem materialized and action was taken that was really pretty structural. It involved people, but it involved big groups of people working to make a change and it saved lives. And I think sometimes what it felt like to me was like people I don't know are doing something that's inconvenient to try to save my life. And they're doing it in, a, in other countries. I, I feel like we should do more with that. Maybe it speaks back to your issue of how this sort of infrastructure transitions can work and what's the political base or even just the human psychological basis for, for participating in something like that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's it's a great example and um, points to something that I've uh, observed uh, over the last 10 years is I've kind of moved from, I spent my early career doing a lot of work on climate change and eventually I got fed up with the argument about whether climate change was real or not. Um, and I decided to spend my time working instead on energy transitions uh, and, you know, arguing that that was kind of what, what centrally we had to do was change the way we produce and consume energy. And, um, you know, what I've observed over the last decade is the energy system is doing that work in the same way that you described for COVID. Uh, it's been slower. But in some ways, it's also, uh, I, mean, I mean, it's, but it's happening, right? Uh, and, you know, I don't, I don't think we uh, recognize just how hard a problem it is to wrap your head around, I deliver electricity. If I'm an electric utility, for example, I deliver electricity here in Arizona, for example, uh, to two million people and a whole bunch of um, a whole bunch of businesses and industries, and I do it 24/7, 365, uh, and that system works, and it works unbelievably reliably. Uh, and now you're saying, I don't get to use. 75% of the technologies that I've used in the past to do that anymore. Uh, but I don't get to shut down and reconfigure. I got to do this while I'm flying the airplane. I got to figure out how to change out the motor while I'm flying the airplane. And um, it's just a huge, just, just to wrap your head around, okay, I'm going to do this, let alone how am I going to do it? But just to commit yourself to do it. And, and um, uh, 
But I think the industry has made that commitment by and large. Uh, you, there, you know, there are still those for whom you ask whether they really have or not. But there's a huge amount of movement happening inside the industry. The challenge is, and this is where COVID-19 differs, is that um, the industry has never in its 150-year history viewed the public as a part and parcel of the conversation about how to do this. Mm. Uh, and, and so that public imagination of transition and transformation um, as, is as at best has been seen as, a, as something to be manipulated in the political sphere. Um, and I think, it's a, I, I think it's a limitation. Uh, we've certainly seen that in, uh, in Puerto Rico where there's a huge appetite among the public in the wake of Hurricane Maria and Irma um, and the disaster that was the energy system destruction that followed those for almost a year. Um, you know, people want not to have that happen again. And they've become convinced that solar energy is the way to do that. But they, it's, you know, it's a, it's a poor place and solar is still expensive, especially when you add batteries, which is what they have to have in order to make it work as a kind of alternative to say a generator that you would buy and put in your garage. Uh, and so there's a huge, there's, I mean, I, I call it an imaginary, right? They, they believe that solar energy is the future of Puerto Rico's uh, energy system all over that island. Deep conviction. Hmm. Almost no policy, business, market, utility response to that, right? That would try to channel that imagination, channel that energy, channel that willingness to pay, to put it in economic terms, for something different uh, and figure out how to mobilize around it and really move. So uh, that, that's part of what we've been trying to do is try to think about how do we, how do we get the energy community to recognize um, that, that mobilizing public imagination can be a powerful force to help them change. Of course, then that comes with constraints the public is going to have ideas about <laughs> where it wants to go and they'll have to take those seriously, but which I understand they're a little leery about. <laughs> yeah. When you turn imagination loose, it, you can't exactly constrain it, but I, I right. Right. Um, I, we're almost up on time, but I actually did want to use this as an opportunity to, to talk about one more, one of the many projects you're working on. And I think it speaks directly to this issue um, which is a project called Cities of Light, a collection of solar futures. It seems to me, so this is, well, tell us about it, but it seems to me this is one quite really um, innovative, but also just holds out a lot of promise um, for how people who want to try to introduce ideas, new ideas around infrastructure change. And I think this is applicable to COVID. So how do you imagine yeah. a different world, right? Um, right. And so don't necessarily just leave that to the academics who can imagine it. And then we talk about it and we write really dry papers for each other <laughs> about <laughs> yeah, it, right. but leave it to the professionals who like imagine things and then bring it to us 
in the written word or on the screen. So this is a work of fiction about energy futures, right? Yeah, Cities of Light is, uh, it's actually the second in a series of volumes um, that we've been doing in collab collaboration with artists and writers. Um, they're free to download from the internet. Uh, so if you Google Cities of Light or The Weight of Light, you can go and you can download an electronic copy or you can, uh, you can purchase a, a print-on-demand uh, copy if you want. Um, they're, um, they're really a response to uh, something we realized early on in our, our thinking about energy transitions, which is almost all the discussion about energy is focused on the technology. Uh, and that's okay when you're in a system and or an infrastructure and, and you're just making minor incremental changes to that infrastructure over time. But if you're going to reconfigure the whole thing, then you're going to reconfigure people's lives at the same time in big ways uh, and in little ways. And, and, and so you have to figure out how to bring the people into the conversation. We've, we've figured out lots of ways to do that, but one of them, but this one's particularly interesting because we realize that science fiction does that, right? It takes a story about technology, but it centers the people. All fiction, all storytelling centers people. Uh, and it centers individual people with all of their, uh, you know, their, their wants, their needs, their hates, their desires, right, as front and center in what drives uh, the story. And so we, we wanted to bring that idea uh, into thinking about the energy transition. And then we wanted to also, you know, just really take advantage of this, this opportunity. I mean, we've never before taken an infrastructure of this scale and change and tried to scale and, and scope and, and seriousness and tried to change it. And so there's this question, what, what do we change it to? Uh, and what are the opportunities there? And so we wanted to give people an opportunity to kind of explore potential futures that we might create. And so we worked with, you know, some amazing science fiction writers, artists, others who can help um, capture and engage the imagination in really innovative and, uh, and creative ways. And, and it's really all about doing what you asked at the very beginning, which is how do we make STS speak to these big issues? Uh, and, and, you know, for me, it really has come down to, and I know some people don't like this, but it's really come down to the, to the idea that there are always alternative designs for infrastructures. Um, and, what I think we can do as STS scholars is open up the design imagination around new technologies and new infrastructures um, and, and help people realize that on the one hand, it could be designed differently than it is. And on the other hand, that with any design choice that you make, and it's not like there are you know, this is true of some designs, but not others. It's true of every design choice you might make. There are consequences for how people are going to live their lives in the future if you make that choice as opposed to this other choice. So you're, you're always trading off uh, on different ways of living in the future 
for people at the same time that you're trading off on different ways of organizing the infrastructures. Uh, and, and so as it, these books are really about trying to bring those choices front and center, right? So do we build solar energy big utility scale power plants? Do we build it small in, uh, you know, at the household scale? Do we create community centered uh, designs? Um, you know, do we build it beautiful or do we build it with uh, an engineering uh, aesthetic, right? Do we, um, do we distribute ownership? Do we concentrate on centralized ownership? These are very real infrastructure uh, choices that have outcomes that will flow with them. And we think we should be incorporating all of that outcome, all of those outcomes as part of the conversation uh, about where to go. Just want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Please join me tomorrow for a researcher's roundtable. We're long overdue for a researcher's roundtable. I'll have Tanya Corbin, Philip Vostal, and Summer Marion on to talk about disaster research and their various different fascinating research projects that they have ongoing. And just to take a moment here to thank Clark Miller, um, I knew this would be a wide-ranging conversation, and it even far surpassed what I expected. Um, Clark, I'm thrilled to hear about the work you're doing, and thanks for really reflecting on on the many different parts of it in the context of COVID. Learned a lot in the conversation. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Scott. Real tremendous opportunity and privilege okay. to be here and have a chance to talk to you about uh, about these topics. We'll bring you back in a few months, I hope. Stay That'd be great. Good. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time.